always on Tuesday, unable to do it last week uh, because what what was what was the excuse again uh, that you used, Philip Wegman, uh, about why you had to blow me off last week? You were you were talking, interviewing, like some underling, like Mike Pompeo or something. <laughs> Uh, I was on deadline. I had to write my story about the interview with the former Secretary of State. Okay. I guess I get to... <laughs> I, I don't cancel on you often. No, you don't. But I, And I'm just looking for a way to cancel on you sometime, and I can never come up to anything <laughs> because nobody important ever wants to talk to me. Hey, Philip, uh, I'll ask you about that interview in just a little bit uh, as we move on. But first, let's talk about this. We seem to be throwing a lot of names around. The name-calling has taken on, uh, it's almost like, and, and I don't want to say it's unique to this time in history, but it's almost taken on a fevered pitch that if I don't like you, you're a fascist, or if I'm afraid to come all the way in, I call you a semi-fascist, or I say, well, your problem is you're just a, you're a, uh, you're either a liberal extremist or you're a conservative extremist. You know, we just, we're just writing each other off, we're, we're we're taking razor blades and cutting ourselves off from people that I think at some point down the line, we're probably going to need them in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that we got a good look at this based off of what president Biden said at the end of the summer in August, when he was in a private donor meeting and he described the make America great again, philosophy of his predecessor as semi-fascist. Yeah. Obviously, that led to an uproar. Plenty of Republicans were offended and called for the president to issue an apology. He didn't. And instead, uh, what the president did just last week on the steps of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, is he made this argument that the MAGA GOP is a threat to democracy itself. And that's very interesting because you have to sort out what the administration believes is just extremist versus what is semi-fascist, which is uh, different from what they see as rank-and-file GOP beliefs. And it's gotten complicated. It's gotten complicated very quickly, and I don't think that the administration, um, in my back and forth with them, has really made clear what they see as the difference between a extremist and what they see as the difference between a semi-fascist. The one through line, um, though, is they are they are constantly reiterating that they are not talking about individual voters. Instead, <laughs> they are talking about the uh, elected representatives of those voters. But I don't think that's going to uh, get them off the hook. I don't know how you make that delineation with a straight face. That's right. Uh, the the delineation um, is interesting because the uh, the White House they, they point to a couple of examples when they talk about um, semi-fascism and extremism. Right. Uh, the examples that they pointed to, of course, were former President Donald Trump, but then they also pointed to uh, Arizona Representative um, Paul Gozar. Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, retiring North Carolina uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn, who lost his primary, and then Florida Representative Matt Gates. What's interesting about all of that is they've called their two most likely opponents in 2024 extremists. Mm -hmm. And then the members of Congress that they named specifically, those are not the guys calling the shots. 
Gozar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Gates, and Cawthorn, they might be good at getting on cable news occasionally, but they are far from uh, the beating heart of the GOP. And to your point about delineating between leaders and voters, it gets very complicated because I asked um, Corinne Jean-Pierre to split the difference between extremism and semi-fascism. Yes, you did. Specifically (laughs) on the question of abortion. I asked her, does the president believe that the efforts to limit abortion, either at the federal level or in the individual states, is semi-fascist? She responded eventually by saying that uh, they see, and this is almost a a direct quote um, from from Mm Corrine, she responded by saying that, uh, you know, anything that is not where a majority of Americans are, that that's an extreme way of thinking. And so wanting to restrict abortion, that's extreme. Wanting to uh, change election laws or wanting to overturn uh, the last election as the former president wants, that they see as being semi-fascist. Yeah. Uh, and and it's what it is is we've already got some words that we know make people nervous. Semi-fascist makes them nervous. Extreme is not comfortable. Uh, so they it's like they have their words already. Now they just need to decide which part of the Republican Party they're going to throw those words at and, and what happenings in a campaign or in a speech or in some kind of a policy change, where they tend to pull those words out and throw them at the enemy. I don't know that they're going to get as much mileage out of it as they thought. And the reason I say that is not only people from the opposing party to the president, the Republicans, uh, really called him on the carpet after his speech, but people, and I, some of it happened behind closed doors, and you say, well, how do you know it happened? Because the day after his speech, literally the day after his speech, he started backpedaling on what it was that he said about some people that were followers, uh, you know, the MAGA people and what they were. I mean, he was like backpedaling almost faster than he pedaled forward when he came out with it. That tells me somebody in his party got extremely nervous very fast. Either they got very nervous very quickly or the president of the United States, when he was asked that question by Peter Ducey, specifically about uh, Trump voters asking if they were a threat to democracy, either off the cuff, um, President Biden was either informed by his staff that maybe he had gone too far in his messaging (laughs) or off the cuff. I think President Biden perhaps did not want to um, double down on on that. And, And the reason why. I think that this is perhaps untenable for the administration is any more politics is completely tribal. It's not, oh, I like this guy's tax Mm -hmm. plan. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like their um, uh, carbon emissions agenda. No. In the last decade, we have seen more often than not um, the real core constituencies of both the Democratic and the Republican Party. They take this allegiance very personally and I think that um, perhaps after that speech was made, they realized, okay, we, we haven't quite split the difference. Um, because I, I can guarantee you uh, that voter in Scranton or Pittsburgh or, or Pekka City, um, when they hear that the, the leader of their party is semi-fascist, um, the immediate question that follows is, all right, well, what does the president think of me? 
And uh, that's that's going to be something that's litigated between now and Election Day. But look, you know, we're not fools. We, we, we know um, clearly what the upshot of this is for Democrats. They want to keep the former president front and center because then they can return to um, a playbook from the previous election, which is this is existential. We have to keep the uh, the opposition from gaining power. You might not like us 100 uh, percent, but, um, you know, go back to that binary. It's either Biden or it's Trump. It's either the, uh, the, the members of Congress who will work with Biden or it's members of Congress who are, you know, aligned with Trump. And um, it's 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 painting with an awfully large brush. Well, it is. And it's and some people are getting sprayed with the excess paint that I don't think like it. I think I think some people from the president's own party, when they see him come out in this fashion, because. okay, he talks about being the unifier. I think somebody told him, now, Mr. President, when you get out there and you give this speech, really give it to him. Let him know you're really behind it, and this means a lot to you. And I think that turned from exuberance into appearing to be politically angry. And, and, I, and I think that it put forth – he almost became a caricature of himself, I think. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if that stepped way too far over what people think. If you go back – and, Philip, I, I don't need to tell you any of this. You know this – far better than I. Uh, you lower yourself by coming onto my program. Uh, but when when you go back to a lot of, of outtakes and a lot of speeches that Biden gave, even all the way back in his Senate days, he often would come off very angry and very mad. In fact, I can show you instances where he was just as intolerant of the positions he now holds as president of the United States. And I think the more people see that, they're like, okay, wait a minute. What are we doing here? Which one is the right one? And even people that believe what he believes as far as policy, I think he's making them nervous. There definitely is uh, a little bit of anxiety on the left and among Democrats over whether or not Joe Biden should be the one who runs for president in 2024. If it's a matchup between Biden and DeSantis, they're a lot less comfortable with that election yep. than they are if it's a replay of Biden and Trump. But if you if you look at the president, I mean, I think I think you're right. Um, on inauguration day, on the steps of the Capitol, he says that it is time to end the uncivil war among Americans, and he's going to be a president for all Americans, even the ones who voted against him. That is a sharp contrast with the argument that he made in Philadelphia. Um, in front of Independence Hall that was lit up in, in red, white, and blue. But because of the way the camera zoomed in on the president, it just um, it showed him with this blood red uh, backdrop. Um, and uh, it certainly, you know, contributed to a, a mood maybe that the White House didn't want. But in that speech, he's talking about how um, the MAGA uh, philosophy is almost mm-hmm. a poison. And that it needs to be drawn out of the, the body politic and that he's going to be the one to do it. Um, that's that's pretty dramatic. And, and there there are examples that the administration will point to in terms of violence, in terms of escalatory rhetoric. Um, but clearly, you know, they see this as something that gives them an advantage. And it's uh, I mean, we'll, we'll, the president says that we're in an inflection point. And certainly mm-hmm. um, I think he's correct because, uh, you know, in previous decades, you know, you did not have 
um, George W. Bush. You did not have uh, Bill Clinton, um, Reagan, or Carter. You didn't have them describing their political opponents as a threat to the democracy itself. And beyond that, you know, it's not just that Biden is saying, you know, what we saw on January 6th was a, a threat to democracy. He is saying um, the entire idea of the former president, um, root and branch itself, yep. is a danger. Yeah, if you have a red baseball hat that says MAGA on it and you wear it, you're part of the problem. You're you're anti-American. You're part of you're part of this big amoeba that's wallowing all over the country and, and sucking in people. And it's got to be stopped. And if you're part of it, then you've got to be stopped. I mean, what you're and saying we, is right. We shouldn't right. be surprised by this either. Uh, this type of rhetoric. I mean, yes, Biden came into office saying he wanted to end the uncivil war. He wanted to unite the country. But you know, rewind to January of earlier this year. You had the president down in uh, Georgia comparing yeah. uh, Republicans to Bull Connor and other segregationists if they didn't vote uh, in favor of his election reforms. That's escalatory rhetoric. The, the difference now is um, he was explicit in his comparison. It was elected members of Congress who he saw as being um, in camp with those uh, deplorable individuals. Yeah. Now, uh, you you have rhetoric which is much more broad, and they insist that they're just talking about leaders. Uh, but the rhetoric is is broad enough that some people are are quite upset. Um, we've only got like two and a half minutes left. I want to jump to this real quick. Mike Pompeo, you had that interview with him uh, a few months ago. He was here in Fort Wayne, and I got to speak to him a little bit. And you just got the sense around him that if he's not running for president, he sure is showing that he can act like somebody who's running for president. When you came away from your conversation with Mike Pompeo, uh, A, did you feel that he was honest with you, evasive when he had to be, but he did it in such a way he sounded like a pretty classy politician? What was your take? Well, first of all, I should have reached out to you for an interview prep. I didn't know that you scooped me on this one. Well, I I scoop you more than you know, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, the former Secretary of State is going to have to defend his record on a number of different things, not just the way that he carried himself uh, at the State Department, but also some of the decisions that he made when the United States was preparing to withdraw from Afghanistan. He it does not bear the same amount of blame um, as President Biden does for that chaotic withdrawal, but he is definitely going to face questions should he decide to run for president on how that all went down. Um, I found him uh, to be pretty uh, frank and pretty candid. I asked him if he was going to run for president. He said that he still hasn't made up his mind, uh, but that you know he's got a team in Iowa, he's got a team in New Hampshire. He's clearly testing the waters. But what I was most surprised by is that he seemed to break with the former president on two fronts. First, he said that if Trump has any classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, he should give them back. And second, um, he knocked down uh, allegations from the former president that Mitch McConnell and former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao uh, were more interested in making money uh, in China than they were in you know, advancing Republican interests here in the United States. He said he didn't see that. Those might seem like trivial things, but they do show something that never happened during Pompeo's time in the Trump administration. Yeah, that daylight between yeah. him and the former president. Well, and somebody's going to try to nail him on that. Uh, you know, here, the the one advantage that I think Pompeo has, not that Trump can't hold his own. 
but the, the, the one thing is the first time Trump gets into um, a debate with Biden again and becomes a little bombastic, people will go, well, there he goes again, and that's it. Pompeo is not going to come unglued, whether it's Biden or anybody else. He'll be rather pointed, but he'll also be very diplomatic. But he will find, I think, a way, if he's the candidate, to um, maneuver those rough waters the same way I think maybe DeSantis would. Pompeo, everyone thinks of him as the secretary of state and thinks of him as the CIA director. That's true. He has a lot of foreign policy experience and he's smart on these issues. But you also have someone who is a congressman from Kansas and before that a businessman. I was surprised by how cordial, how quick he was with the crowd Mm -hmm. and their response when I interviewed him in uh, Steamboat, Colorado. Uh, A lot of these conservatives who would pick Trump as their first choice they really liked Mike Pompeo. Yeah, and I think that's probably something that needs to be realized. Listen, time's gone. I appreciate you, my friend. Uh, the next time I try to outscoop you on a source, I'll let you know ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> I, I owe you at least that much. Uh, but, but for your time today from, time, from Washington, D.C., inside our nation's capital, it's uh, it's our good friend uh, from Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman. Philip, thanks a ton. Thank you, sir. Podcasts by Federated Media.